0: I want to introduce you to a man named Neil Bitterman. He is a 39-year-old entrepreneur and father of two young children. Now, he owns a business called Ashley Madison, and that may sound innocent enough until you catch that the company's slogan is, life is short, have an affair. You can... Quickly discovered that he runs a business that actually connects would be cheaters online in this secure and anonymous, through this secure and anonymous website. He's making millions off of institutional adultery. Though he claims himself to be faithfully married to his wife, he then contradictingly says this. Monogamy is a failed experience. There's little doubt that marriage is under attack at so many different angles. Some view marriage as simply irrelevant. Some, like Bitterman, view it as destructive. Others view it in a very cavalier way. It's it's almost as if it's kind of they treat it as a social experiment. this works out great, really? if not, it would be almost awesome. and so it would be interesting to me if we could hear a conversation, we could set up a conversation between Nil Bitterman and Jesus. Because as you would expect, Jesus has a radically different view of marriage. And we're going to get his take this morning as we open up to Matthew chapter nineteen. So if you have your Bibles Go we'll back to Matthew chapter 19, and we're going to look at what it means to think rightly about marriage. Thinking rightly about marriage. That is our topic this morning. If you're using the Bible to provide it for you, that's on page 824. Now, last week, if you remember, we studied the end of chapter 18, in Matthew's Gospel, and we included that life in the kingdom radically reorients the way that we relate to one another. We saw that in light of God's radical and measureless forgiveness toward us, we can then extend great and radical forgiveness to others. From that scene, Jesus then moves from Galilee to Jerusalem. He's on his way to Jerusalem, and we're going to find that he is confronted by the Pharisees again. And they come to him to test him, and they ask him this provocative question about divorce, And Jesus is going to actually not answer their question directly, but he is going to, in effect, say, look, you Pharisees, you are always asking the wrong questions. Let me elevate your understanding of God's design for marriage. And that is what we are going to examine this morning. So as we look at how Jesus seeks to elevate their understanding, I think we'll find that he does the same for us. Jesus teaches us in this parable that marriage is a gracious gift from God designed to reflect his purpose and his character. Let me say that again. Marriage is a gracious gift from God designed to reflect his purpose and his character. If you would follow along as I read Matthew chapter 19 verses 1 through 6. Says this. Now when Jesus had finished, finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them. there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Before we dive into this text, let me just say, this is, is, again, We're not afraid of kind of difficult texts at Redemption Hill, okay? Just so you know, if you haven't caught that already. So this is kind of another kind of weighty text. And it's one that, I want to share this one with great humility. For I don't claim to have arrived in my own marriage at all that Jesus intends for me. And I realize that this can be uh, a great topic, but it can also be a difficult topic, depending on your life experience this church. And so I just want to encourage you, no matter if you're happily married right now, if you're unhappily married right now, if you're yet to be married, if you're once married, Jesus has a word for us, right? No matter what state of life we're in, it's so not like you read Matthew's gospel, you just skip over chapter 19 because it doesn't get applied. If it, if it, apply all of that, it applies to all of us, right? And so I hope that you'll be discouraged. Jesus wants to teach us how to think rightly about marriage. Number one, Marriage is more sacred than you think. This is what we find in the first four four verses of Matthew 19. (coughs) Marriage is more sacred than we think. See, the Pharisees come to Jesus in verse three with the hopes of dividing the people. They ask him this provocative question, is it lawful to divorce one's wife, look at this question, for any cause, and what they're doing here, Matthew points out in verse 3, it says that they came up him and tested him. What they wanted to do was they wanted to see where Jesus would line up with these different schools of thought in Judaism in that day so that if nothing else, they could discredit his ministry or discredit his influence If by nothing else kind of causing Jesus to group himself with one set of people, thus ostracizing himself from another group. So you have these schools of thought. You have the, the school of Hillel, which said, look, a man can divorce his wife for really any reason. I mean, if a wife cooks a poor meal, write her a certificate of divorce. Okay, now, now man, I'm proud of you. No one, like, glanced at their wife at that morning. And uh, you know, said, so "Hey, you might be guilty on that account. Um, that's good. Man, I'm proud of you. Father's Day is going... Really well, still, so far. Good job. Um, so so that, was, that was one school of thought. Another school of thought was the school of Shammai, and they said, look, divorce is totally off limits, except in the case of adultery. And so you have these two schools of thought, and we would expect, at least the Pharisees expected that Jesus would give them a direct answer, but Jesus, being the smooth operator that he is, and we see this over and over and over again in the Gospels, he doesn't answer their question directly, but he takes them back to God's design. From the very beginning. Notice how Jesus begins his response in verse 4. He says, it says that he answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male female?' Don't miss these first few words. Have you not read? This is a scathing critique of the Pharisees. Why? Because Pharisees were supposed to know God's law inside and out. I mean, if anyone should know the answer to this question, it should be the Pharisees. I think we would even or should be challenged. How well do we know God's word? We know it inside and out. That's the goal of our lives. Hopefully, we would be so intimately acquainted with the scriptures that we know it inside and out. And that is a lifelong pursuit, obviously. But that is the challenge. But let, let me just kind of provide a means of encouragement why this is so important. Why should, we should know the scriptures. We should not hear, have you not read? Because we can have absolute confidence in God's word. Check this out. This is something that we can just kind of pass over in reading the passage. But Jesus says, "Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning, male and female, said, Therefore a father shall leave his, uh, excuse me, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh.' Now, why is this so significant? Because Jesus is quoting Genesis two twenty four. What's so special about that? Who is speaking in Genesis 2.24? Moses, the narrator of Genesis. So you have a claim from Jesus to say what Moses said in the scriptures, God has said. That's why we affirm the divine inspiration of scripture. I mean, this is not just in this kind of minor detail on the paroling, this is all throughout. Jesus, will read Matthew 5, read John 5 and 6, read Paul and 2 Timothy, and we can have absolute confidence in God's word because it's given by God, and therefore we can trust it perfectly. Now, back to the issue at hand. Rather than answering the question, it goes all the way back to Genesis. And he does this to expose God's intention and design for our marriages. And this is so important to not miss this. Because Jesus grounds his whole argument in God's creative purposes from the beginning. We see it here in verse 4. He says that from the beginning, God made us in a particular way to relate to one another in a complementary fashion. Then in verse 5 and 6, he quotes Genesis chapter 2. And then even down further in verse 8, we're going to see again, and he's going to say, from the beginning. So our understanding of marriage and our understanding of God's purposes for marriage have to be rooted in God's creative purposes. You see, many believe today and or live as if marriage is man's idea. Even if theologically we don't affirm that practically so many of the times, we we live as if marriage is a human institution. You know, there's something something like this. Um, Two people fall in love, and then they decide if this is kind of a good thing for them or not. Um, They embark on a journey of spending the rest of their lives with this person, at least to the point where, You know, the the benefits outweigh the cost. Because when that kind of pendulum swings, then, hey, you know, it's time to make a decision whether or not we want to continue to commit to our commitment. And that's how marriage is treated in so many instances today. So, if we have a proper theology of marriage, that marriage is God's idea, it's a divine institution given by Him, and the purpose of our marriage is none other than the glory of God. Just as everything in our life is to point to his glory, that is the design for our marriages. To light up who God is, to show how great he is. And so, let me ask you, husbands, when you hung out at home this weekend, were you equipped to wash the dishes for your wife? Were you Quick to lay aside the remote control and, you know, before bed, walk, rub her feet for more than, you know, 10 seconds. I kind of use that sometimes, 10 seconds. So, kind of quick things are conscious of it, you know. Um, so, so, listen, when we do that, when we do those things, we are pointing to the greatness of God. Why? what about you? When you endured the three-hour-long marathon at the Bruins parade, and then you know closed your day out by watching the Red Sox that night, and putting the kids to bed again by yourself again, you give opportunity to point to the grace of God in the way that you love your husband, treat your husband, respect and love your husband. Now, let me just say briefly, because marriage is God's idea. That means that he gets to define it. The biblical witness from, from Genesis all the way through the New Testament, just as we see here, defines marriage as a covenant relationship between a man and a woman. This is where we would line up in terms of God's guidelines for the sanctity of marriage. We understand living in the, the wonderful Commonwealth of Massachusetts that this is not already the popular view. And we want to hold our convictions with great love and charity. But we want to stand where God stands on not only this issue, but every issue. And as we even state those convictions, we should note that while many churches rightly affirm that stance, those very same church- churches embarrass themselves and embarrass the gospel by the way they treat those of a different persuasion. Follow me? So we don't want to be a church like that. Anyone and everyone is welcome at redemption help. It doesn't matter what background, what their preferences and convictions may be at this point in their life, they are welcome with open arms to come to this church. To explore what it means to follow Jesus. To attend as much as they want to. I'm using my language carefully. We'll have membership one day. Okay? But, but, but we welcome people of all different backgrounds to explore what it means to follow Christ. So we see first that marriage is more sacred than we think. But here, number two, this gets better. Marriage is more intimate than we think. We see this from verses five and six. Let's read those again together. We see in verse 5 that that Jesus says, quoting Genesis 2, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And So again, Jesus kind of kicks it old school again. He takes it back to Genesis 2. And he says, this is God's design for Mary. And he uses very strong language here. Did you catch it? In Genesis 2, God says that a man shall leave his father and mother, his family unit, and then hold fast. Now the NIV says, leave and be united. The King James, speaking of old school, you're all this, you may know it. Leave and cleave. It's not a bad one. Leave and cleave. Now, the idea of leave can can be understood that that, that Greek word can uh, be, can actually mean to abandon. Okay, so this kind of gives you a picture here. Abandoning his family doesn't mean not having love for or not caring for. Of course, that would um, go against other biblical demands. But, but it gives the idea we're abandoning this relationship for his relationship, which we hold fast, we're united, we, we cleave. We're, the, the, the word there is, is to, to be glued to, to be cemented to this new relationship. The picture of a a husband and a wife. They become in God's great design one flesh. So so, so notice, Jesus doesn't just say that married people are simply close, though they are. He doesn't say that, that you should love your spouse more than anyone else on the face of the earth, though you should. He doesn't just say that this is the closest relationship that you should have in life, even closer than their closest family member, your closest friends, though it should be. He doesn't even reduce this one flesh relationship to the idea of what happens in the bedroom, though that is not excluded. Thanks be to God. Right? At least some of your smile. Trust the Lord as we take the. And he doesn't. It's not just those things. It's a, thing. a man and a woman, when they become husband and wife, they actually become one. Become one. So in God's mathematics, when it comes to marriage, one plus one equals one. And this is a great mystery. Paul in Ephesians five, we read at the beginning of our service. He quotes Genesis 2.24, You heard that in in verse 31, and then he follows it up by saying this in verse 32, he says, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So Paul has a great kind of uh, encouragement on what a married couple should look like, how Wives should relate to their husbands. How husbands should relate to their wives. He says, in all of this, the union between a husband and a wife should point people to the union between Christ and his church. It is a mystery, and it is a great privilege and responsibility. Think about what privileged marriage is. Marriage provides an opportunity for two people to share life in a way that will be shared with no other person. And therefore, let me just simply encourage us, let's not take our marriages for granted. It doesn't matter if we've been married six months or 60 years. Each day that God gives us in the the marital context is a gift to be enjoyed, to be lived out to the fullest. We should wake up every day and remind ourselves, I get to love my spouse today. I'm sure you do that. I get to serve my spouse today. All right, somebody texts me that like every day. To sweet, that uh, encouragement. So it's a it's a great it's a great privilege, but it's also a great responsibility. See, if Ephesians five provides this incentive that our marital vows are a picture of of Christ and His church, then it puts the greatest weight of responsibility on how we live out our faithfulness and love to our spouses. So again, if if someone were to observe your marriage, observe your role as husband, your role as a wife, what conclusions would they draw about Christ and his church? Husbands, would they see a sacrificial, caring leader who is more concerned about his wife's holiness than he is earning that next promotion or? Would they see a man that is devoted to God and his word who reads the Bible in a kind of a Deuteronomy 6 kind of way to his wife, to his family, that the word of God kind of flavors everything that happens in the home, and they would actually pause and regularly pray with your wife? That is the privilege that we have, and it is our responsibility. Wives, would they see a great helper who lovingly respects her husband? Even when he may not always be in the right. When they see a woman who joyfully follows her husband's lead as he follows Christ, and that is a great qualification there. And sometimes when you that not follow. Right. Here's a question to evaluate oneness in the and I love this, I love this just mystery, this truth. When when people think about you, is it difficult for them not to think about your spouse? You have the question? So, so when, when people think about Josh, one of my best friends here on staff, we serve together here. at actually when people think about Josh, did they naturally think about Jessica? So I want to tell you, I, I do. Because I know them. And it's not just because we hang out, you know, it's not just because like, people say, hey, are Josh and Jessica gonna be there? Can I go together physically? No, it's so much deeper than that, right? I mean, I see Josh and I was using an example. He's probably about to tear up because he's the kind of the guy that he is. he is. It means something to him, right? He's a compassionate brother. So to put Josh on the spot. When, when I think about Josh, I think about Jessica because I know he loves her. I've seen it. I've seen her love for him. I've seen them go through beautiful times. I've seen them go through very difficult times. I've seen God's grace evident all through it all. I've seen God continue to, to grow them in their oneness. So that's the goal of our marriage. When, when people think about you, they should think about your spouse, but they should go together. You're one. You're united in Christ. You see, God makes this happen. And his spirit enables us to continue to grow in our unity, to grow in our oneness as we individually grow in grace by God's spirit. Verse six continues, Jesus says, what therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Marriage marriages should be understood as a covenant. It is two imperfect people who submit to God's will for their life and commit for a lifetime to love one another, to serve one another, to be faithful to one another. And wouldn't you agree that the love that goes the distance it's an astoundingly beautiful thing. I mean, don't you, don't you love to see like the old couple walking down the sidewalk, like two gray-headed people holding hands, walking down, because they still love each other, because they belong together. This is God's design for our marriages, that they go the distance. But sadly enough, not all marriages go the distance. This brings us to our third point, which I think is a lot of distraction for us. Marriage is not only more sacred than we think, it's not only more intimate than we think, it's also more difficult than we think. Let's read verses 7 through uh, 10 together, and we'll dive into this. Continue. As they said to him, after this answer, notice, let me just pause, I'm sorry, let me, let me just say that this is the this is the answer Jesus gives. He says, you ask me a question about divorce. I'm to talk about God's intention for marriage, which is, 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 is oneness for life. And so the Pharisees then come back with a, kind of a rebuttal. They ask him another question to kind of dig deeper. They say to him, why did Moses command one, to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning... It was not so, and I say to you: Whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. Let's stop here. So once again, I'm fully aware that this is a difficult time. Divorce is a very hard thing. It's a very odd thing. I think that. If we took a poll, I'm not going to ask for one tomorrow, but I think if we took a poll, I would be shocked if there was even one person in this room whose life, in one way or another, was not touched by a marriage that ended in divorce. I can think about my own life, close family members, close friends, many friends already who are very young. Their marriages have ended in divorce. see this was a great reality in the day of Jesus as well so the Pharisees try to drill down I mean Jesus has kind of counted the permanency of marriage and so they, they drill down again and say well why did Moses command a man to write the certificate of divorce and did you notice that the the, the the word switch by Jesus he does say. he said Moses allowed you to he didn't command for you to. I and mean, again, they don't know the scriptures like Jesus does. So, so Jesus says, Look, Moses allowed you to force. Why? Because of the hardness of your hearts. So this is what happens sin enters into the heart of a person and it begins to pervade a person's life, it begins to become rampant in a relationship. And when that happens, the consequences of our sin is that our hearts become hardened. First and foremost, they become hardened to God. We no longer love him as we ought. We no longer worship him as we should. And then they become hardened to one another. And this is clearly evident in marriages that don't go to the sins. God's word no longer sticks to the heart. God's will is set aside as an afterthought. And you see, we learn here from Jesus that as he corrects their understanding, he says, look, Moses didn't command, he allows for it. Once again, Jesus is pointing out, look, it's my hope that your marriage will stay intact. That even in the midst of great sin, that, that, that God extends this hope of restoration and forgiveness. But then he completes this in verse nine, says, "And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality, and marries another, commits adultery." And there is a long history of interpretation on this verse. We're not going to get into it today. I think it's best to take Jesus' words at faith value. And, and, and what's the point here? Okay, so there's an exception here. This 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 serious adultery, sexual immorality, is is, is, is a Exception for divorce. That's the way most scholars have interpreted it over the throughout the history of the church. Some will disagree and say you stick it out no matter what. I mean, this is the encouragement. In this, in this, if then when this happened in show, you're going to hear that the first encouragement is consider going the distance. Consider giving it time. Consider saying that may not be the case in all, but that's the heart of God. This is what he's getting at in verse 9. He desires marital faithfulness, even in the midst of a messy and sticky relationship. I mean, let's be honest. Sin is present in all of our marriages. A great encouragement for this is the prophet Hosea. That's a shocking tale. Go read Hosea sometime this week. God commands his prophet Hosea to marry a prostitute. He commands her to love her. He commands him to love her and to be faithful to her when she is utterly faithless. Why does he do it? To show the people of Israel that that is how he relates to them. Though they remain faithful, so they can turn aside again and again and again. He remains faithful to his people. That's why. Marriages. Our marriages should be a picture of Christ in the church, that we stick it out sometimes, even when it's extremely difficult, even when we've been wronged and offended and sinned against in the most horrible ways. And, and so, again, let me just say that if you or someone you've loved have, have gone through a marriage that has, has, has not gone the distance, has ended in divorce, there is so much grace and forgiveness in the heart of God for you. And his grace and forgiveness can fill you and, and bring a newness in life. He can bring restoration. He's a God who gives beauty for ashes. And we should praise him for that. In this passage, Jesus defies the contemporary wisdom of our narcissistic age narcissism just says it is a term that means that we kind of think life kind of revolves all around us, right? So we live in a very selfish society and we hear things like this, look, if your marriage is not fulfilling your needs then just hit the road. Don't stick it out. I mean, if your emotional needs, your needs for understanding, information, communication, fulfillment, if these things aren't being met then you can just scream, hit the road. And yet, we know that there are alternatives to this view, right? And the, the greatest alternative is found in the gospel. Since when did love become about you or become about me? 1 Corinthians 13 says, love is patient in time. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. Love is not selfish. It's not self-seeking. And so to kind of bring this back to the picture of how God relates to us, I mean, what's in it for God? That he would love us. I mean, God is not thinking, what do these people bring to the table to meet my needs? He has no need. God's love for us is completely unconditional, full of grace and mercy. And he orders that our love for our spouses and by extension our love for others should be the same. Now, before we close, I want to offer a few encouragements to those who are single, which probably a lot of time in our church is going to be the majority of our church. Um, and this follows the pattern of the sermon. So, so number one, since marriage is more sacred than you think, if you desire marriage, it's a good desire. It's a healthy desire. Don't be troubled by that. Pursue it. But, but I would encourage you wait patiently. Pursue God more than any man or woman. And trust Him to provide in His time. That's where you find yourself. It's more sacred than things. God's desire. God provides for us, our spouses. Number two, since marriage is more intimate than you think, be patient for God's provision and pursue purity in your singleness. We live in a world full of temptation. Full of temptation. And God wants us to preserve our purity for our spouse. On that note, while you're single, you have a great opportunity, even some greater opportunity than married people to pursue serving in the kingdom of God. And this is exactly what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. Use your singleness to glorify God in a way that may not be possible. It doesn't mean there's, there's not one calling better than the other here, okay? Each is a gift from God. And we should so, then finally, number three. Since marriage is more difficult than anything, don't rush into marriage without discerning God's will. I'll uh, say without reservation it would be better not to marry than marry the wrong person. To get involved in a relationship that isn't going to glorify God. And this should, goes without being said, but let me say uh, God wants Christians to marry Christians. It's clear in Scripture. He wants us to. Live our lives in such a way in our marriage that we would reflect Psalm 34, verse 3, one of Marshall's favorite verses. Glorify the Lord with me, let's exalt his name together. So don't rush in, it's difficult, it's not easy. Bring two simple people together, and extra grace will be required, but it is worth it. So if you desire it, pursue that in the Lord's good grace and time. So to close, I want to tell the story of a man named Robertson McQuilkin. He was the president of Columbia Bible College and Seminary, and in the mid-1980s, his wife, Muriel, was diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. It was by 1990 that it had become so bad that she really needed him by her side at all times. And so he was faced with a difficult decision, to resign as president of the college and seminary to, to care for his wife and her dying ones. This story is told in a book that Marsh and I read during our premarital counseling called A Promise Capital. It was highly, highly recommended. And, and I want to read you a portion, not out of that book, but actually out of his resignation speech that I believe is a tangible example of the heart of God for man he says this. I haven't in my life experienced easy decision-making on major decisions. But one of the simplest and clearest decisions I've had to make is this one because circumstances dictate it. Muriel, now in the last couple months, seems to be almost happy when with me and almost never happy when not with me. In fact, she seems to feel trapped Becomes fearful, sometimes almost terror. And when she can't get to me, there can be anger. She's in distress. But when I'm with her, she's happy and contented. And so I must be with her at all times. And you see, it's not only that I promised in sickness and in health till death do us part, and I am a man of my word, that As I have said, I don't know with this group, but I've said publicly, it's the only fair thing. She sacrificed for me 40 years to make my life possible. So if I cared for her for 40 years, I would still be in her debt. However, there is much more. It's not that I have to, it's that I get to. I love her very dearly, and you can tell it's not easy to talk about. She is a delight. It's a great honor to care for such a wonderful person. Your marriage was made to tell a story. Your marriage was made to go the distance. That's the power of Christian hope. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are concerned for us that you've displayed your faithfulness and your love time and time and time and time and time again, even in the midst of our great unfaithfulness. And so, Father, I pray that this morning, as we're confronted with your truth, as we see your design from years, that we would be encouraged to, if we're married, to love our spouse as you have loved us. And, Father, for, for those maybe who are not yet married we pray with them that they would see this picture and they would as they desired they would pursue this kind of marriage this kind of, of picture that Jesus puts forth and father for those who maybe have experienced the the, uh, the great difficulty of, of relationships marriages that, that have been no life for I know that your grace is a and your forgiveness is huge, and that you bring restoration and beauty for ashes. So Lord, even this morning, we pray that you would do that as we worship you, as we continue to worship you. We pray in Jesus'